Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Reading the newsletter celebrating the 40th anniversary of the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, I found an old friend within. His name is Carl Meyer, and he has been a deep-thinking and a devoted practicing advocate for peace and justice since his mid-teens. His pioneering in war tax refusal and his enthusiastic and fearless advocacy of refusal of complicity with injustice, whether in war, in nuclear weapons, in environmental conditions, or in economics, has inspired legions of activists. Heavily influenced by the Catholic worker movement, but definitely going his own road, Carl is now in his mid-80s and is assembling his autobiography to pass his lessons on to others. Carl Myers joins me today via Zoom from Nashville, Tennessee. Carl, I really appreciate that you chose to join me today for Spirit in Action. Well, I'm happy to be here. You're back from a stint of working as carpenter up in Chicago area, I think. How did that go? Great. It was a great vacation. I'm 85 years old. I'm still able to do it up to nine hours a day, five days a week. And I'm working for customers, some of whom go way back into the mid-1980s. And I have many friends from 40 years of uh, nonviolent peace activism and social justice activism in Chicago before I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, to be warmer and to do urban agriculture, urban gardening in 1997, 25 years ago. And I've been going up to Chicago almost every year, except the two pandemic years. And the one fall that I was in prison (laughs) and wasn't allowed to go up there, (laughs) federal prison. So I go up there when the harvest is largely done in my very prolific garden here in North Nashville. Did you start out to be a carpenter, or is that an avocation that you chose to avoid war taxes? Well, let's say to refuse war taxes. I didn't do any avoiding. I confronted the IRS for many years. But yes, previously to becoming a carpenter at age 38, working as a helper for $3 an hour with small contractors in order to learn it and to make a living doing it. But previous to that, I was a manager of uh, sheltered workshops for mentally disabled people, uh, those that we now call developmentally disabled, that back then we called mentally retarded. And I did that for seven years. Before that, I was often a clerk and warehouse worker in bookstores and book companies because I engaged in nonviolent action against war so frequently in Chicago. I needed to quit and take off, and uh, the college bookstores always were happy to take me back (laughs) in the fall or in the January semester or whenever I showed up to work again because I knew the book business and was a good worker and they liked me. 
And the same way with carpentry, one reason I went into it is that I could be self-employed. It would be enable me to continue my very active and public opposition to the payment of taxes for war. But it also gave me great flexibility that I, once I learned how to do it well, I could work whenever I wanted to work and I could take off to do activism when I had accumulated enough money to do it. And that's why today I can still go up and work for old customers in Chicago, as I did seven weeks this year. (laughs) They used to wait for me all year to do repairs on their houses. People for whom I formerly did kitchens, bathrooms, decks, room additions. And are these customers people who are particularly also supporting you in your activism? Or are they just people who know that you're a great worker? They like me. And in fact, nowadays and since 1990, when I took a year off and uh, built a really elegant motorhome with displays about nonviolence and peace, even people who are wealthy, uh, lawyers and doctors and so on, don't seem to mind me driving those motorhomes with peace displays on them, nonviolent action displays, anti-war displays. My most recent van that I was up in Chicago with has a display about affordable housing, which is such a huge problem in our cities. So those who kept calling me back didn't mind me driving this moving display about peace in front of their houses and parking there for several days or up to a week in and out all day long, uh, getting tools, getting equipment. But some of the people... The National Lawyers Guild, which is a progressive lawyers organization that works on immigration issues and social justice issues. At one time, I had something like seven clients who were members of the National Lawyers Guild. And did they also help protect you in court or did you bother to go to court? I don't even know how you approached your struggles with the federal government over war taxes. Well, I have a a record of about 50 or 60 arrests. I have a total of having served two years in prison, three federal sentences, two for trespassing at military bases, one essentially for my leadership in the war tax refusal movement during the Vietnam War, nine months of a two-year sentence on two misdemeanors, over about $500 in refused taxes, Meanwhile, or very near that time, Governor Otto Kerner and judge of the Seventh Circuit Federal Court of Appeals uh, got, I think, only a year in prison for avoiding $80,000 in taxes on $160,000. And the judge who sent me to prison for two years on two misdemeanor counts maximum to be served consecutively over five. He testified as a character witness at Judge Kerner's trial. So that kind of tells you how it works. Also, it was around the time that Spiro Agnew, the vice president, was going to prison for evasion of taxes. And Richard Nixon had to pay taxes on something like $600,000 that he had evaded. Uh, so <laughs> it's an insight into our judicial system. But in later years, I've represented myself quite effectively on First Amendment free speech issues. And I win about half of my cases. And 
But the judiciary, the judges have somewhat changed in Chicago. After the Vietnam War and that generation, judges of my generation and of the Vietnam War generation, which is about 10 years younger than I am, they began to become judges in Chicago courts, and they agreed with me about political issues. So even when they convicted me to keep the police happy, they uh, would give me the lightest tap on the wrist that was possible (laughs) as a penalty. (laughs) For a lot of people, I certainly know for me, when I started in more tax resistance back in 1982, right after I got back from my services Peace Corps in Africa, you were one of the people who was inspirational to me because you have decades long, many decades at this point, a witness against supporting war through taxes. And you are notable because I think of all of the people I've seen who've gone to prison for war tax resistance, you were sentenced, as you said, to two years, served nine months. I assume that was for good behavior or something you got out. No, I got out. The parole board released me, and I believe because they realized that giving a person who consciously, consciously and publicly refused to pay taxes because of opposition to the Vietnam War and to all war, that to give a person the maximum possible prison penalty on two misdemeanors with the prosecutor saying that it was about $500. And at the time, by the way, I was running a Catholic worker shelter in my own home, sheltering homeless men. The FBI came to my house every couple of years back then to see if I would pay a $500 fine for trespassing at one of the first Atlas Intercontinental Missile Bases being built in Nebraska, six-month sentence for trespassing there in opposition to that Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Program. And my FBI files show that when I said that I couldn't afford to pay the taxes and wouldn't pay them if I could, they just made note of that and said, we'll report that to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and that was it. They were very cordial with me about it. In one FBI report, they commented on what poverty I was living in in this shelter with homeless men. But I wanted to make a point that I call it war tax refusal rather than war tax resistance. And the distinction I make is this. I make a comparison to electricity. Copper resists the passage of electrical current, and that creates heat, and the heat creates light. (laughs) When it heats certain copper or um, other metals to a heat that they glow and create light, I call it war tax refusal. Porcelain refuses the passage of electrical current. (laughs) So I not only resisted taxes, I refused the payment of taxes. And one of the ways that I did that was becoming a worker as a carpenter, but also the method that I wrote about and pioneered that created a much larger movement of war tax refusal and resistance. And that was the method of claiming extra allowances, which the IRS regarded as illegal, on W-4 forms. And that method can still be used to prevent withholding of taxes from one's wages and salary. 
I didn't invent either of these methods, but I wrote about them for the Catholic Worker and for other periodicals in the peace movement. The refusal during the Vietnam War of the 10% excise tax on telephone service, which was specifically enacted in order to provide extra revenue for the Vietnam War, as the congressional record showed. So that would be talking about effective methods. And one of the things that I was inspired by you at that time in 1980s, when I first got to know you, was your enthusiasm and your positivism, your, the direction you were headed. What I'd like to do for our listeners for Spirit in Action today is to recap a little bit of your personal history, because what I really hope is that eventually your autobiography will be widely published. But I'd like to know a little bit about you. I'd like to talk a fair detail about the whole idea of war tax refusal and the kind of positive social change work that you've always been worked on. And I think in the end, I want to deal with some philosophical questions, if you will. Sure. But let's start with your life. You've got a name, Carl Meyer. Carl starts with a K. Carl is a German Carl, like in Karl Marx and other people like that. Am I correct in assuming that you've got some Germanic background? Three grandparents of German heritage, one of French heritage, French Huguenot heritage, refugees from France before the American Revolution because of Catholic persecution of Protestants in France, many of whom then emigrated to Holland, to the Netherlands. And my French ancestors emigrated to the Carolinas before the American Revolutionary War. My German ancestors came from Germany in the mid-19th century. I believe that my German great-grandfather on my father's side came to the United States to avoid conscription into the Prussian army. And I think he came after the revolutions in Germany and Europe, the famous wave of 1848 revolutions, which mostly failed. My father was a forester. He was raised as a city boy, and but he went to Pennsylvania State Forestry School and he was a forester. We moved to Vermont while I was still a small boy. I don't remember living anywhere. And my father became county agent for the Soil Conservation Service of the Department of Agriculture in Bennington County, Vermont. So I was raised on the land in a small village in Vermont. My father and mother were very progressive politically. They voted for Norman Thomas, the socialist, in 1948 when I was 11 years old. They subscribed to the Progressive magazine. My father had refused service in World War II. He was not a pacifist, but he didn't believe in that war. And my mother introduced me to Gandhi and Gandhianism in 1948. January 1948, I believe, when Gandhi was assassinated in India, and I was 10 years old. I became interested in Gandhi. I read about Gandhi. I read a book called Gandhi and Stalin. I read a book, Gandhi, His Life and Message for the World. And at that time, I became a Gandhian, and I've been a pacifist and an advocate of effective nonviolent action ever since. I also, in those years, was reading adult material. In my early teens, I was reading Plato, 
my parents subscribed to a book of the month club that was called the Classics Club. And I was reading books from the Classics Club starting when I was nine years old and in my early teens. So I was also influenced by the dialogues of Socrates as reported by Plato. So those were the early influences on my thinking. My first political action was writing to Secretary of State General George C. Marshall, Harry Truman's Secretary of State. I think it was in 1948 when I was 10 years old, asking him to make sure that the atomic bomb was never used again. He didn't reply to me, but (laughs) that's my background. Did you have a religious background as well? My parents were basically agnostic. My maternal grandmother, who lived upstairs with my father's mother and father and great aunt, who lived upstairs in our house in Vermont. We did a lot of gardening. We had 16 acres. My father made of our 16 acres a real arboretum. We planted many trees. We had berries. We had fruit. We had a large garden. And my father was very concerned about environmental issues way back then. So that's the heritage, an interest in ending war, the abolition of war. I came to believe that the abolition of war was the most important issue for my lifetime. And that I was going to work on that when I was still a teenager. But I also understood the importance of a symbiotic relationship. Symbiotic meaning you cooperate with nature and with the natural world and that you respect the life of animals and plants, the whole web of life. So I had that influence also when I was a child. Which is a good point to remind folks that when you want to follow up with Carl Meyer, his website is endwarlistentoearth.com. Exactly. Endwarlistentoearth.com. And link is, of course, on northernspiritradio.org. So at the time when I was a young man and when I became active in the peace movement, Firstly, by being arrested with Dorothy Day and Ammon Hennessy when I was 20 years old and still a juvenile for refusing to take shelter in these crazy compulsory New York State so-called nuclear air raid drills where everybody in the state was supposed to hide in buildings. And I lived in lower Manhattan. I was working for Barnes & Noble in the basement of Barnes & Noble's first store in the U.S. College Book Department. My boss was a vice president of Barnes & Noble at the time. But in lower Manhattan, what happened when two airplanes with nothing but jet fuel aboard crashed into two buildings in lower Manhattan? Now think about what would happen if 20 Soviet nuclear weapons hit Manhattan. And children in school were supposed to hide under tables and put their hands over their heads. And it was insane propaganda by the government about the threat of nuclear war, that that you could survive it by hiding under a table, you know. (laughs) And we refused to do it. We went out and sat on the Bowery in a, a bench on the park. It was my first arrest. The judge gave me 30 days in jail. I served 30 days at Rikers Island, which is still a notorious juvenile prison in New York 
that is under U.S. Justice Department demands and supervision even now, 65 years later, you know. Back then, if you did resistance actions and nonviolent actions against war or for social justice, you were going to be convicted in court and you were going to be sent to jail. And that didn't daunt you. I think you got connected with the Catholic Worker Movement when you were 19. Is that right? 17, really. I dropped out of the University of Chicago after a year, went to New York, got this job as a stock clerk in the basement of Barnes & Noble. My house head, a history PhD student at the University of Chicago, wrote to me and he told me, I don't know if this is what you need, but I think this is what you want. And he recommended the books of Dorothy Day and Ammon Hennessy. Ammon Hennessy's autobiography of a Catholic anarchist and Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker with Peter Marin, her book, The Long Loneliness. And I was deeply influenced by those books. But I had read Thoreau, Walden Pond, about environmental concern and the essay on civil disobedience that had influenced Tolstoy. Gandhi, most of the figures in nonviolent movements had been influenced by that essay. Although this man only spent one night in jail. Right. (laughs) But he wrote so eloquently about it, and he had refused something like $8 in taxes about the Mexican War. But he wrote so eloquently about it that he influenced many generations. What attracted you particularly about Catholic Worker Movement? Well, the Catholic Worker Movement in the United States. It's like the Gandhian movement. Peter Morin, the philosophical founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, whose ideas really influenced and created the ideas of Dorothy Day, who's now on the fast track to canonization as the most influential American Catholic. But there is a wholeness in that philosophy, in that it addresses the global wholeness of issues about social justice, that you have to live differently. And in the Catholic worker movement, we weren't social workers. We were living together with me in a five-room storefront after I started the House of Hospitality. We called them Houses of Hospitality. We took in whoever came if we had beds. And we lived as friends with people who were homeless, people who were mentally ill, people who were in poverty and in distress. Many of us, as I felt, I got more from them than they got from me. Peter Morin also advocated a life on the land and a productive relationship with nature, what he called the Green Revolution. This was before the so-called Green Revolution of chemical agriculture, you know? So something about Catholic worker movement attracted you, its communal nature, its activism. What about theology? Did that have anything to play in your ideas? Well, I converted to Catholicism, but it was a large part of it was because I was part of one of these first very strong Catholic interracial justice movements, the Friendship House movement, a refugee, a Russian baroness. Catherine de Hewick in the United States, in Harlem in the 1930s, created a movement that was kind of a sister movement. And by the way, both the Catholic Worker Movement and the Friendship House Movement were movements that way back in the 1930s 
were fighting racism, were opposing racism, were working for a fully equal, just relationship between races in the United States. By the way, the Communist Party was also doing that in the 1930s. But at Friendship House in Washington, D.C., I found a community there, but I had a suasion toward Catholicism. And I don't practice or believe the theology of Catholicism anymore, but it's still my favorite religious story. I, just, I think it's just a story. It's a mythical and symbolic story. I compare it to acting in a play, but a play with a cast of something like 300 million people around the world or something like that, all sharing the same fictional story and acting in the same play. But the ideas of Jesus deeply influenced me. I don't call him Christ, Lord, or any other title than teacher, which is what his own followers called him, you know, rabbi. I doubt that he ever claimed to be God or anything like that. But his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Gospels are very fine teachings. I disagree with some of them, but I disagree with some of the ideas of Gandhi also. And <laughs> I disagree with some of the ideas of Dorothy Day. We have to do our own thinking, and it has to be honest. I think the fundamental principle of anything called spirituality or religion is you have to be honest about what you believe. With that, I want to remind folks that you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find links to Carl Meyer and his website, andwarlistentoearth.com, and all of our other guests of the past 17 years, Kathy Kelly, other people that Carl's work. My with. former wife for 14 years. And by the way, I regard my uh, most significant and valuable achievement in 65 years of nonviolent action, largely focused on the abolition of war. I think that my most valuable contribution was in mentoring Kathy Kelly, who took this a lot further than I was able to do. So you'll find that interview with Kathy Kelly, one of the times when she was speaking, when I was present, and many other great workers for the healing of this world on northernspiritradio.org. Please post a comment on these interviews after you listen to them, and please let us know what you're thinking and who we should be talking to. And there's also a place for you to support us with a donation. We make the express decision as part of our operation to not accept money from government or from corporations, because as soon as you're beholding to these forces, they want to modify or affect which way you're going to be speaking about the world. And so for both Spirit and Action Song of the Soul, we depend on you, the listeners, for your support. Again, Carl Meyer is here. He's inspirational to me. I learned about him early when I was a war tax resistor. He spent more time in prison than most people I know of. And I wanted to ask you something about that right away, Carl, before we go too much further. A lot of people fear going to jail. They fear the horrible things that happen to you in prison. It looks to me like you just take it as a good writing vacation. Why shouldn't we fear prison or jail? Well, if I were in El Salvador or Egypt or Iran or many other countries, Syria, I would fear it. But it's very benign in the United States. It was a vacation for me. 
<laughs> you know, they wanted you to work an hour a day in the federal prisons, and what, an hour or two. Um, they made me a physiotherapist at Sandstone Federal Correctional. They're, they're really country clubs. The conditions, the clothing and everything that I had, except for the quality of the food, was often better in jail than it was in the very poor neighborhoods in Chicago and Nashville that I've lived in and the shelter that I ran. But government, the Internal Revenue Service, is based on fear. A compliance with the law is based on fear. So the whole premise of nonviolence, and you find this from Gandhi and from Martin Luther King, is overcoming fear, particularly fear of government. Now, in some countries, you have a really great reason to be afraid of government. In El Salvador in the 1980s, under the dictatorship of the elite in El Salvador, a person like me, my head would be found lying by the roadside, severed from my body for being the kind of activist that I am in the United States. So I'm not denying that. It depends somewhat also on your personality. I've been threatened. I've been pressured towards sexual activity. I was a very attractive young man when I went to prison, being transported on a federal prison bus from Springfield, Missouri, to a federal prison camp in Pennsylvania in 1959. There were a number of people being transferred from Alcatraz to Atlanta after Alcatraz was closed. They were threatening me with rape. But the guards on the bus heard that. When I got to Lewisburg Penitentiary, they housed me in the hole in a separate cell where they were sure that these folks couldn't get at me after they heard those threats. So anyway, there are reasons, there can be reasons to be afraid of prison, not really of a federal correctional institution. But of some county jails and some state prisons, I've never been in a state prison. I've been in many county jails, but I've had threats. In fact, the first time I was in Rikers Island, I had a threat that could have been fairly credible, except that I was relaxed about it. And I responded in such a way that the several gangbanger types that were kind of threatening me with sexual abuse backed off. So I don't know. Uh, I wasn't brought up with fear. I lived in the country. I ran around in the hills. My parents never showed a lot of fear about what I was doing. They didn't teach us fear. And my brother, my sister, and I were all the same kind of people. We weren't brought up with fear. And although they're not political or social justice activists, it's very hard for anyone to push them around. And one of the big things is that our children are being brought up with fear now. They're washing their hands all the time. I have a lot of immunity. We, we had our hands in the dirt. We had our hands in stagnant ponds. We were swimming in creeks and so on. We were gardening. I'm gardening now. My hands are in the dirt all the time. And I don't want to get past this interview without talking about the listen to earth part of it. In 1997, I moved down here to Nashville. In a very poor neighborhood, I bought a vacant house for $18,000 as a carpenter, four-bedroom brick house, and I bought a so-called vacant lot next to it. 
And in those years, I planted chestnut trees that are now 40 feet tall. I got 63 pounds of chestnuts off those trees this year. I raised maybe 80 to 90% of my own food. So to address the issue of climate and ecology, we have to live in a different way. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this in Nashville, to model the use of, I'm in the inner city. I'm only two miles from the state capital. I can walk down there or ride down there on my bicycle when I want to do some lobbying at the state or at the city government, which I do a lot of. But I'm raising that in my yard rather than mowing grass and then watering it so it grows faster and then mowing it again with gasoline. So I'm trying to model a different way of living in the world. And Gandhi had that idea. And Peter Morin, the uh, spiritual and intellectual ideas behind the Catholic worker movement had that idea also. A symbiotic relationship rather than a parasitic relationship with nature and our planet Earth. Reverence for Earth, I call it. Reverence for Earth. I wish we would all have that kind of reverence, and I think this would be a very different world. And I thank you for working for it. There is something that when you were talking about prisons, jails, you talked about the difference between being in prison here in the United States versus maybe El Salvador or Iran or any of the other places where it could be much harsher, Egypt right now even. All of those places are, are much worse. When we, and I, I talk about myself and you, refuse or resist war taxes, we end up also resisting paying taxes to the government in general. So I've definitely felt the criticism toward me of people saying, why aren't you supporting our government? Well, I'll tell you why. I'm not. The United States government has a lot of beneficial programs for people, but it's controlled by a corporate elite. Those of us who are pacifists and nonviolent activists are told that our freedoms are defended by people in the military. No, I defend the Constitution of the United States. I defend our freedoms. I defend by exercising the First Amendment freedoms that are in our Constitution and by defending them in court. Throughout my lifetime, in which around 50% of the discretionary income tax income of the United States government has been spent on military. And the United States military in my lifetime has not been defending our freedoms. It has been waging war in other countries and destroying the freedom of those countries leaving those countries devastated. It'll take them decades to recover from the devastation of these wars. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and now Ukraine are being destroyed when the United States, and if you want to have our world evolve in the direction of more benign governments, you have to stop taking military sides, often with rebels against an existing government, sometimes progressive rebels, 
sometimes oppressive rebels, where the U.S. helps to overthrow democratic socialist governments or tries to help a rebel movement in Syria or in Libya, but they don't succeed and they leave the country devastated. I'm reading this morning about the huge number of refugees and immigrants coming to European countries and to the United States, to more democratic and benign countries, because their own countries have been devastated and destroyed so much that they risk their lives to leave them. If you allow a country to live in peace and to evolve slowly, but the United States approach has been to take sides, provide military, either to a dictatorship or to a rebel movement, to provide military support, and the countries end up devastated. They are set back decades in their economic development. And in the modern world, if countries are allowed to develop economically, the United States should be using its influence in the United Nations Security Council and in cooperative institutions to always foster mediation, compromise, shared power in these countries. And I'm very distressed that there is no movement for uh, reconciliation and mediation in the Ukraine war because the Ukrainian people are suffering terribly and devastated. And there are hundreds of thousands of millions of refugees from Ukraine now. And it's going to take decades for them to rebuild when there was an opportunity to negotiate neutrality for Ukraine. The neutrality that allowed Switzerland to develop economically, Sweden, other neutral countries that didn't get involved in internal civil wars and in, and in wars among nations for centuries. So the best choice for the Ukraine would have been to accept the idea of neutrality, to agree that they would not put U.S. nuclear missiles a few miles from the Russian border. When the Soviet Union proposed to put short-range nuclear missiles 90 miles from the U.S. border in Cuba, the United States government said, we'll go to war over this. Back off. The Soviet Union was smart enough to back off. <laughs> the United States doesn't feel any threat, and they're encouraging the continuation of a devastating war in Ukraine. And it's hurting Ukrainians first, Russians second, Western Europeans third. It's hurting people all over the world because they would not sit down and negotiate a peaceable solution that would meet the concerns of all parties. But we have no peace movement on the Ukrainian issue, hardly any now in the United States. And the reason is this, in my lifetime, the elite establishment of Congress and corporate money and both the Democratic and the Republican Party in this country, they, particularly the corporate elite, realized that they should get economic control of all the mass media of communication in the United States. 
So that's why you're reduced to creating a little podcast interview program with people like me. <laughs> I don't think it's reduced to be able to talk to Carl Meyer. <laughs> I, no, I think- but look at your audience is not the audience of Fox News, ABC, NBC, Warner Communications, USA Today Network, uh, McClatchy, all of these. What's the um, the one that owns all the radio stations, uh, the right winger? Uh, yeah, it used to be called Clear Channel, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Your network isn't that large. It doesn't reach as many people. Now, one of the reasons they're so tolerant of us in the United States is we are to them what a mosquito is to me or what an ant is to an elephant. You have you, you ever hear Noam Chomsky, who's one of the smartest and wisest men on America, do you ever hear that man interviewed on mass media? I don't. Well, one of the things I would mention about Ukraine that feels at least somewhat different to me, and this doesn't mean I, I support war or even that war, but it's very clear to me that Ukrainians themselves are opposing just like Afghanistan was opposing when the Soviet Union wanted to control them. Or when the United States wanted to control them. Exactly. In this case, it's very clear that... No, it isn't that clear. You think it's clear because you're only hearing, you're primarily hearing the Ukrainian side of it. Now, I totally understand why all the countries of Eastern Europe, the former countries that were states in the Soviet Union and the countries that were communist-governed countries in Eastern Europe, the members of the Warsaw Pact, I totally understand why they want to come under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. I totally understand their point of view, but I don't think it's a good idea long-range. Gorbachev and Yeltsin very much wanted to bring Russia first. Gorbachev allowed the secession or tolerated the secession of so many of these states from the Soviet Union. When some states tried to secede from the United States, what did Lincoln say? The Union, it must be preserved. America, the Americans, the North went to civil war to prevent states of the United States from seceding. Gorbachev didn't use the Russian military to try to prevent those countries from seceding. They allowed the breakup of the empire. And then Gorbachev and Yeltsin wanted to bring Russia into the Western European economic, social, democratic structure. George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and little baby Bush, I call him, George W. Bush and Obama and Biden pursued the, the program of pushing NATO right up against the Russian border. You have to understand that that was highly threatening to what remained of the Russian Empire or the Russian territory. You have to understand the point of view of your adversaries, and you have to talk with them. You have to have 
a relationship with them. But what our presidents since 1989 and our governments have done, uh, well, I shouldn't call them ours, they're not mine, but those of the United States have done, is the Cold War had been ended. I'm nostalgic for Kissinger and Nixon because they were balance of power people on international affairs. Nixon and Kissinger made treaties to limit the nuclear threat with Brezhnev in the Soviet Union. Bush abrogated those treaties. Nixon, who built his whole career on accusing the Democrats of losing China to the communists, as soon as he was elected, he realized, let's have a peaceful, constructive relationship with China. And he's now a hero in China, huh? Because these people realized that the United States cannot and should not dominate the whole world. I'm against the Russian government. I'm against the Chinese government, the way it operates. But we cannot tell the whole world how to manage their internal affairs. We have to recognize their conceptions of their national interests. And we have to, right now, Biden is talking with Xi Jinping. These people restarted the Cold War. And who benefits from restarting the Cold War? Planet Earth is being destroyed. The peaceful development of all countries in a global uh, network of mutual respect is being torn down. We have to get together on an international global level and cooperate to save the environment of our limited planet Earth, to use a great power influence in the United Nations and the influence of the United Nations to end civil wars, to mediate civil wars, to recognize the concerns of all the parties to civil wars and see what we can do. We need an international relations that allows the peaceful, progressive development. And listen, in my lifetime, I have seen tremendous social progress in the United States. I saw tremendous progress on racial issues. I saw tremendous progress on the equality of men and women. I saw tremendous progress on the freedom of people to practice their own innate sexuality. I saw progress on the actual practice and use of the rights guaranteed in the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment on search and seizure in the United States in my lifetime. But it comes from peace and prosperity. And in the world today, where we have universal communication on the internet, the young people of every country, whether it's Iran, Russia, China, the young people are going to want to bring their countries toward a more progressive and beneficial structure. But it has to be done through peace, not through bombing and destroying countries all over the world. Before we finish, Carl, I, I want to address some of the specifics, just a little bit of the specifics of war tax refusal. Because a lot of people believe there's no way to do it effectively. And obviously, your life serves as counterpoint to that. 
your time in prison, have you been to prison other than the nine-month stint specifically related to war tax refusal, or has it always been for other witnesses? No. You know, Cassie Kelly and I in Chicago and the war tax refusal group in Chicago, we went down to the IRS every year. We did nonviolent protests in the April 15th period. We took the press. One year we took apple pies. One year we took cabbages. One year we took Brit. And we went up to the problems resolutional with radio broadcasters and reporters in tow. And we went and said, we have a problem to the problem, so-called problems resolution office. We have a problem about the way the money is being spent. We became friends with the IRS spokesman. We did it publicly. We challenged them publicly. And when I was on parole for 15 months, the United States attorney subpoenaed me or called me to go down to the federal building to see if he could coerce me into paying the $1,000 fine and paying the back taxes. And I said, no. They found that they couldn't intimidate me by prison. And nobody likes the IRS. That's why the Congress doesn't even want to give them the money they need for enforcement. (laughs) So of all the things I've done in my lifetime, the actions that I got from which I had the broadest public sympathy, the right-wing libertarian movements after the year that I filed 365 daily protest returns and was penalized $140,000 by the IRS, the right-wing libertarian movements were inviting me to write for their periodical and speak at their gatherings about how to do tax refusal effectively. So I also want to mention I had a a significant role in resistance to military conscription during the Vietnam War and in 1980 when uh, Jimmy Carter and the Congress bought back registration for the military draft. I was arrested seven times in 1980 for singing songs and at the sign-up tables in U.S. post offices in the federal building downtown. Are you a bad singer? Is that why you were arrested? Uh, no, I, if I know a song, I can sing it pretty well. I got an acquittal <laughs> for singing in the post office. When uh, the Federal Protective Service officer charged us with disorderly conduct, and I asked him in cross-examination, uh, who made the complaint? Who was bothered? Oh, it was the manager of the post office. I said, Is he here today as a witness? No. Do you have his complaint? Well, we have it on tape back at uh, our office or whatever. Do you have that tape with you? No. Who was annoyed? (laughs) There was no witness. Were you annoyed? Were you annoyed by our singing? No. The judge said, case dismissed. <laughs> there was no evidence that anybody was annoyed by our singing. <laughs> it sounds in so many ways as if you actually were able to convert situations that many people would have been trapped by their fears. You converted them into opportunities for joy and forward movement for the world. And Kathy Kelly and I 
and others among us. We made friends with any law enforcement officers. Kathy Kelly still goes down to the federal building because she does a lot of protests about the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on, and Yemen. And when she, she used to go down there after I moved to Nashville, the sergeant in charge of the federal building protective police who had written tickets for us and arrested us a number of times over draft registration and Central America protests in the 1980s. Every time she comes out, Kathy, where's Carl? How's Carl doing? You need to form a personal relationship with your adversaries. You need to listen to their ideas. You need to see how you can come together with them. I'm all for it. You got my vote and you've got my life serving in that purpose as well. You know, I can't take your vote because I have a criminal <laughs> record so long that anytime I would run for public office, I would be smeared up against the law. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry that we don't have more time. As you said, Carl, your autobiography as it currently stands is something like 505 pages. And I want to thank specifically NUTRAC, the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. And folks, that website for them is NWTRCC, the NUTRAC dot org website newsletter is how I was informed that you had your autobiography, Carl, that wanted to get out to the world. And folks, so I want to encourage you to track it down. Again, Carl's website is endwarlistenedearth.com and learn about his positively dazzling realism autobiography. I'm so thankful for your years of activism. I'm so thankful of your connection with the earth. And I'm so thankful for your carpentry, which is probably the only reason that Chicago is holding together at this point. Thank you so much for your work in all those areas and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. And again, find Carl Meyer on endwarlistentoearth.com. Links on Northern Spirit Radio. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every